Hello, everyone. Welcome to InterSTEM Talks episode 12, this time uh, where we wanted to focus on popular science writing, specifically with different epidemics, pandemics, outbreaks that have happened uh, almost like throughout the course of history. Um, mainly, we'll be looking within like the past 50, uh, 30 years, kind of like in that time frame. Um, but since we talked about the relationships between history and biology last time. This time we want to talk a little bit about um, kind of like popular science writing, different forms of media like movies and books and um, uh, I don't know, hypothetically, maybe poems, uh, TV shows, all of which um, connect with biology or one could say public health or just uh, epidemiology, different different things um, in the science world. So we're excited to talk about that today. I'm uh, Andre. I am a junior at Beckman High School, and I'm the InterSTEM co-president of the Orange County chapter. Hi, I'm Mana. I'm a junior at Los Altos High School, and I'm really excited to contribute today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. My name is Gordon Chang, and I am from Rancho Cucamonga High School as a junior. Hello, everyone. My name is Caden, and I also go to Rancho Cucamonga High School along with Gordon, um, and I'm a junior as well. And so to start off, um, prior to this podcast, we talked a little bit about um, different uh, science movies or, or things that were related to um, uh, epidemics, again, outbreaks, pandemics. And so the three that we want to focus on today are uh, in order malaria, um, swine flu, and Ebola. And so that's kind of what we hope to talk about today. And I guess we can, yeah, we'll start off with malaria is the first thing. Okay, so what is malaria? Obviously we've heard about malaria in the past as a disease that spread from Africa and infected the globe, uh, the globe and its worldwide population, right? Uh, but at its core, malaria is a mosquito-borne disease caused by a parasite. Right. And people with malaria uh, often experience various symptoms, which include fevers, chills and flu like illness. Right. Within the last decade, um, many people have uh, there's been an influx in people who have contracted this disease, leading to the detriment of much of the world population. In 2016, for example, there was an estimated six, 2,216 million cases of malaria occurring worldwide. Um, leading to the death of 445,000 people, um, of which obviously, like I mentioned before, um, are people from the African region, right? And why is it from this region specifically? Um, well, in Africa, uh, as we know, temperatures are really high, right? It's really hot there because it's close to the equator, humidity is high, and there's a bunch of rainfall. And guess what? Those are the perfect conditions for um, mosquitoes to thrive in. And so, uh, the specifics include the Anopheles mosquito. So these are the, the most deadly uh, mosquitoes that, you know, uh, distribute malaria within people. Um, and their growth rates are rapidly increasing in these conditions, which make it that much of a bigger problem in Africa, right? Um, so like I mentioned, symptoms include chills, fever, and sweating um, as well, um, and usually occur a few weeks after being bitten. You know, people traveling to areas where malaria is common, um, like I mentioned, Africa, uh, typically take pro protective drugs before, during, and after their trip just to, just to make sure that they're, you know, vaccinated from 
uh, not completely vaccinated, of course, but sort of protected from this disease. Um, and other treatments include anti-malarial drugs. So um, what is the CDC and the world doing to prevent this you know, disease, right? Malaria control is carried out through uh, recommended malaria treatment, like I mentioned, uh, anti-malarial drugs and prevent, sorry, prevention interventions. Um, prevention focuses on malarial control, uh, mosquito control, sorry, uh, through insecticides, water storage methods, and bed nets. Basically, altering those conditions that mosquitoes thrive in so that there are less of them to, you know, distribute malaria in, um, and sometimes preventative anti-malarial or fever treatment. Um, treatment of a patient with malaria depends on each country's national guidelines because every environment is different, obviously, right? The environmental conditions of Africa vastly differ from the environmental conditions of Australia, for example, right? So well, taking these things into consideration, uh, including the type of the parasite of itself, the clinical status of the patient that was infected by malaria, and an accompanying illness uh, or condition, uh, especially things like other things like uh, other factors like pregnancy, drug allergies, slash other medications taken by the patient for to treat other illnesses, and whether infection was acquired as well as the presence of the anti-malarial drug resistance there. So all of these factors are taken into consideration when treating um, a, a patient with malaria, but this differs with other, other um, infections and other countries worldwide. Another disease that also went to a global scale in a sense, um, impacting a lot, was um, the swine flu in 2009. So most notably, this was uh, known as the H1N1 pandemic, and it was um, the novel influenza virus, obviously, being uh, the swine flu. Uh, essentially, the swine flu came from pigs in Mexico, just as a, a fun fact, but that was the origin. Um, and you see a lot of like similar symptoms to the flu, but it's, it's obviously more extreme. Otherwise, it would not be considered um, uh, as, as detrimental, I guess you could say, of a variant of influenza. Um, recently, it's been, you know, an, a lot more under control. We never eradicated the uh, disease or anything, um, and, and neither was malaria eradicated or Ebola. Um, there's always smaller outbreaks, but um, there was a lot done by the CDC to update their guidelines and, um, and combat those um, uh, issues that were facing people all over the globe. So one of the things that really changed after the swine flu in 2009 was that there became a, a heavy emphasis on surveillance, um, whether that be just more data collection of people who might have been affected or even it might have been infected or even those who were not. Um, infected, just collecting as much uh, relevant data as possible. Also, vaccine effectiveness monitoring. So um, we, we have influenza vaccines, obviously, um, but monitoring their effectiveness, especially considering that they're a bit different from uh, a vaccine like COVID, where efficacy is like 90, you know, in the 90th percent. Um, 
influenza vaccines, their effectiveness might wane more, uh, or in another uh, case, might just not be as monitored or surveyed as much as they should, being that it's it's not like a, a, a pandemic that truly caused a, a major lockdown, although it's not to say that it wasn't a dangerous um, thing. Nonetheless, that that's uh, what contributed to a stronger emphasis on surveillance. There was also um, antiviral resistance testing. There was a lot more done with um, gene sequencing and trying to map out the entire genome of the virus. And so we got a lot better at doing that with not just influenza, but also a lot of other viruses. Um, and then one of the things that is really um, noticeable and actually when I participated in like an online CDC um, like week long program this past, uh, what was it, uh, this past summer, one of the things that was emphasized is the number of laboratories that CDC um, funds or that the CDC is involved with in one way or another. And a lot of those laboratories came up after the swine flu. And so dozens, if not hundreds were set up and those could be used for gene sequencing technology to develop you know, the revised uh, vaccine um, as necessary for different influenza or future viruses, cough, cough, COVID. Um, and so a lot of that um, that we have today was really brought on um, by things like the swine flu in which we learned um, from how we could improve, you know, just overall um, health of everyone. So um, yeah, that's, that's what was interesting about swine flu. Um, and then another thing is that there uh, was a really good example of swine flu that I found, uh, you know, relating to popular science writing. And that was with Contagion. I actually haven't watched it. I've just heard a ton about it because uh, I don't really want to watch it right now. Um, we're all kind of exposed to that. I'll probably not to the extreme of the, of the movie, um, but it's a movie that was, um, uh, you know, released in 2011 but you know that directly coincides with being after H1N1 and, and the purpose of it was to um, be based off of the swine flu um, virus. So that was like just another interesting thing that I found. So uh, just like as Andre said, during the swine flu, CDC was one of the many organizations that placed um, really heavy emphasis on outbreak surveillance. And uh, similarly during the current COVID pandemic, the CDC has issued a bunch of guidelines for the public to follow. So, you know, we have mask mandates, we have hand washing criteria, things like that. But a lot of the public health infrastructure and organizations like the CDC that we have today um, actually evolved because of previous epidemics and scares. So getting back briefly on the topic of uh, science writing, there's this novel called The Hot Zone that was also made into a TV show. And um, this novel is basically about the Ebola epidemic scare in the US. I definitely recommend reading it. Um, it's super suspenseful, almost like a thriller, but it's all real. So I know Gordon watched a little bit of the show. Maybe you could talk a bit about that. 
Absolutely, guys. So The Hot Zone is a TV show that was released uh, fairly, actually pretty recently. It was actually released in 2019. So if you are, you know, interested in something, I highly recommend that you guys watching it. I mean, you know, again, it was heavily dramatized, but, you know, it did depict the real life um, occurrences of what happened in the United States, because as I'm sure very few of you guys know, um, in very early on in the 90s or so, I believe, that there, the, the Ebola virus like came close to, I guess, causing an epidemic in you know the United States. And man, oh man, did the TV series make that really suspenseful. I mean, you know, I mean, it stars a lot of famous uh, great actors, right? One of them, Liam Cunningham. But the thing is, so I guess to give you guys a bit of a background on it. So the Ebola epidemic began to spread in Washington, D.C., right? As the show depicted it. And it was started with monkeys in labs, right? So... That was insanely suspenseful for me personally, because again, I had never known that something like this occurred, right? I thought this was all like, you know, just highly fictional, but looking into it, that's the stuff that happens, right? And it really shows how governments handle potential outbreaks, but it also shows how small mistakes can cause huge issues, right? And because the United States was seconds away from possibly, you know, having this Ebola epidemic spin out of control. Yeah, the... the... Ebola epidemic caused a huge scare in the U.S. Um, and for a good reason, too. I mean, the virus has a really high fatality rate. It's very infectious. And perhaps the most terrifying thing is that uh, there's no known cure, just like swine flu and malaria. Um, and the reason I bring this up is because around the 1990s, there were a ton of organizations that worked together to keep these um, Ebola cases, which Gordon talked about in Monkeys, um, isolated which may have actually prevented the spread from becoming a worldwide pandemic. And the steps that they took were really crucial and extremely timely. So uh, for example, the CDC and the World Health Organization responded um, really quickly and sent out experts to scout for the virus and notify a ton of countries to tighten borders and uh, quarantine travelers. Um, they also did a really good job of keeping such a sensitive situation under wraps. I mean, the last thing they probably needed was a massive public freakout um, to slow things down. Uh, but as, as Gordon said, the novel and the show was a bit of a dramatic portrayal of the Ebola epidemic. Um, there were really graphic descriptions about the symptoms and um, I know like a lot about hemorrhaging. Uh, but that was precisely the thing that was needed to kind of wake people up and start having a discussion about viral outbreaks and setting good guidelines. Um, and as a result, there were major changes in the CDC. So they began funding uh, public health infrastructure and talking more about biodefense and things like that. So books like these actually have a huge impact on fueling public health campaigns. Um, which is why having engaging science literature is super important. All right, so I'm, I'm really glad you brought up the symptoms because I actually just want to talk about that real quick. This is like the, the symptoms are, I think the only thing that the show doesn't depict, like I guess going overboard, right? It dramatizes everything, but like if you actually search up like the Ebola symptoms, it is like, it is extremely horrific. And, you know, the show, I mean, as horrible as it was, I think the actual, the realistic symptoms of Ebola is actually a lot worse, right? And it's like, it is absolutely horrifying. So that's why, like, that was really what got me to the edge of my seat when I watched that show, right? It was just how, how insane that something like that 
almost like spread worldwide. So then with that said, one of the things that I thought from what both of you said is, first of all, um, do you think that there should be more books and, and more forms of media on this? Um, and then uh, also, secondly, do you think that if there are those um, additional forms of media and whatnot, do you think that they should uh, depict all of those symptoms? I guess more so the, the first question is a bit more like general and, and more like broad. So we can focus on that one. But what, what do you guys think on, on that? Yeah, so I definitely think we should embrace science writing and um, encourage it. I know that a lot of people sometimes uh, shy away from science because it can be really complicated and not very engaging, but I guess having novels and shows that allow for uh, communities to come together and have discussions about science is always really great. Um, I do think though that if we can make the novels and shows more realistic um, in the sense where we take, we discard a few of those theatrical elements for more educational elements. Um, yeah, that could make the entire, uh, oh, what's the word? That could be a lot more beneficial for the science community. Absolutely. I, I completely agree with that. I mean, honestly, like science literature for I'm sure me and Ma, I think we both, both of us find it very entertaining, right? It's just, I mean, with like a lot of sci-fi films and different things like that, it, it is really fun to watch. However, I do think that it goes overboard with the entertainment aspect, right? Like, I'm sure you guys all see those sci-fi movies with like crazy monsters where it's like, you know, like a science experiment gone wrong. That's completely fine, but that is, it's, it's a bit wild, right? But I think now more than ever, we need to educate people on how like, hey, what's been going on in the world and, you know, make it entertaining while doing so. And that's why I really like the hot zone, the show, because again, it, it didn't go crazy with like so many people dying, right? It, at the end of the day, the Ebola epidemic back then, only like eight people got infected and nobody died. So I'm really grateful that that show was able to accurately depict that. That's interesting for me, um, answering my own question, I guess I would um, uh, see what Mana is saying about making things uh, more realistic, kind of like what both of you guys were saying, but um, I would also ask, and I think you guys would agree, like being realistic with ourselves as well, would that actually happen? Probably not. But it's like an ideal situation, like we would want um, uh, companies that are making movies or novels and whatnot, uh, and writers, we would want them to make things more realistic, but that takes away the dramatized factors of everything, and that, and that kind of um, impacts the overall ratings, maybe, of their movie or book or TV show or whatever it is, um, and, and so in my opinion, would it happen? No. Should it happen? Yes. Um, but ju I, that's just like a, re what do people say? It's like a reality check or something. Um, in my opinion, at least. And so actually, I think that there's a 
um, a larger discussion on kind of like um, ethical, like should you, would you, and, but that's just like a more general life thing. Uh, what I will say about those kind of like ethical debatable things is that that's something that we want to uh, probably talk about in future um, episodes. But with all of that said, um, I think that's um, uh, kind of our spiel, if you will, on uh, today's podcast episode. And of course, we want to thank everyone who listened um, to today's episode. Please uh, feel free to tune into any of the past episodes. There are 12 and counting. Um, and so please uh, take a look at those. And so we'll hope to see you guys in the next episode. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you all. <laughs>